You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. Uh, you can turn to Joshua 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7 briefly and then thinking about a certain subject within that. If you were with us last week, you're thinking we already covered this, and we did. We covered the whole chapter last week, and we're just kind of rewinding to, to, to dive in a little closer and to go a little deeper into what is in these seven verses or really in, in I think, verses 4 and 5 here of Joshua. So we're going to be looking at this, thinking through Rahab and her hosting of these spies up on the wall in Jericho. And the king comes and asks, are they here? And, well, they were, they left, and they're not here anymore. And we're going to look at how to understand that today. So as you're going to Joshua 2, we'll put uh, one of the pictures. We've got two pictures. I think this is from Micah, isn't it? Yeah, this is from Micah last week. He gave me, now if you can see, use my pointer, there's two faces in the flax. Micah got them hidden in here, and uh, I think that's Rahab. They went that way, as they asked, where are the spies? They went that way. Oh, good. Okay. Uh, Let's see if I can go. He's got another one. Okay. And on their way out, I'm not sure if the Hebrew translates this, or, but it says, by weirdos, na, 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 na. So perhaps they said that. I don't <laughs> I have to look at how I translate that one, Micah. That's good. So anyway, that's great. Appreciate it. So let's read God's word, and then we'll, we'll look into it. Joshua 2, here we go. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman who had taken the two men and hidden them. Oh, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Let me pray for us again. Lord, again, as we come to your word and we, we tackle a difficult question ethically to look at what Rahab did here, Lord, many opinions are going to abound or have potential to. Lord, I pray that Whatever comes out of my mouth, Lord, would be pleasing to you, would honor you. Lord, what is not, what is not of you, you would just cause ears to not hear. Um, we just pray that you would work through your word, through our study today, uh, to give us greater understanding about who you are, how you work in this world, what our place is in this world, even as it relates to, to truth. And so help us with that today, we pray In Jesus' name, amen. I want to read to you a modern story, one uh, you might say maybe has a little bit of 
connection to Rahab, a modern story, one during the Holocaust, during World War II, a certain village in France named Le Chambon, however you say it in French. It's probably close, maybe not. They had to deal with a dilemma that's a lot like Rahab, and I'm going to read from a book called uh, Biblical Christian Ethics from David Jones, and here's, here's the story. Here's what he recounts here. And they had to deal with this question, is it ever okay to lie? He says this, The Holocaust produced numerous instances of this particular conflict, this obligation to speak truth, that is. But none so telling is the conduct of the villagers of Le Chambon sur Linon, my best French there, in the mountains of southeastern France. Led by the village's Huguenot pastor and his wife and assisted by several Darbius Plymouth Brethren families in the surrounding countryside, the Chambonais successfully rescued some 6,000 persons, mostly Jewish children, whose parents had already been murdered by the Nazis in Central Europe. They saved them from the jaws of death. As Philip Haley recounts the story, from their first attempts to help Jewish refugees, Pastor and Magda Trachmi, I think that's his wife's name, learned that they would have to conceal their efforts from the authorities and others unsympathetic to what they were doing. Quote, to reveal that help would be to betray the refugees, to put them in harm's way, either conceal them or harm them. Those were the alternatives. Philip Haley says, but in La Chambon in the beginning of the 1940s, concealment meant lying. Lying both by omission and by commission. It meant not conveying to the authorities any of the legally required information about new foreigners in Le Chambon. And it meant making false identity and ration cards for the refugees so that they could survive in Beachy, France. Given their commitment to the duty of truthfulness, this presented a profound moral dilemma to the Trochmades, this pastor and his wife, and their co-conspirators. Again, Philippelli says, To this day, Magda remembers her reaction to hearing about the making of the first counterfeit card. She remembers the horror she felt at that moment. Duplicity for any purpose was simply wrong. Even now, Magda finds her integrity diminished when she thinks of those cards. She's still sad over what she calls our lost candor. She still feels anguish for the children of Le Chambon who had to unlearn lying after the war and who could perhaps never again be able to understand the importance of simply telling the truth. But usually when she says this, she suddenly straightens up her body with typical abruptness and vigor and adds, Ah, never mind. Jews were running all over the place after a while, and we had to help them quickly. We had no time to engage in deep debates. We had to help them, or let them die perhaps. And in order to help them, unfortunately, we had to lie. I recognize... Even asking the question today, is it ever okay to lie, is full of opinions and ideas. I'm simply asking an obvious question of the text before us, to which the text, in the case of Rahab and the spies, it doesn't directly answer. It doesn't say, yes, good, no, bad. I believe this is not because it's trying to hide the, t- the truth here. It's, it's sharing what Rahab did 
But the main point, as we looked at last week, the main point is not on whether Rahab, what she did was right or wrong, but that God had gone before his people of Israel. He was melting hearts uh, of their enemies, and he was even preparing a prostitute to help these uh, spies. So that said, what I'm going to offer today seems to me it's a helpful way to work through these issues and these problems. It's not the only place you're going to find in the Word of God where you go, well, now I... Is that right or is that wrong what she did? Uh, There's other places. You'll see them as we go. Um, But hopefully it's a helpful way uh, to look through the text and this question, is it ever okay to tell a lie? Or or when must we tell the truth? And I'm going to work through it and answer here. But here's my caution for you. So this is a little more like a class today. It's sermon, but we're a little more lecture today as we work through this question. Here's the caution Test what I say by Scripture itself. Be the Bereans. Look at the Scripture. Examine them that I'll give out here. I I don't have a Ph.D. in ethics. Sermons like this, I wish I did and and had more. But I've learned, I'm working through books and different things and thinking through this. It's really a question for myself as it is. Maybe for some of you, some of you, you read it, you go, doesn't matter. I don't know if that's happened. Some of you go, what is going on here? And so I hopefully... It's helpful, but test it with Scripture. We're going to be in, in, I think, these are some hard waters. These are not waters uh, and questions that are necessarily answered in a half hour or a 45-minute sermon. There's, but you can look at places for this. But hopefully what I'm doing today is throwing out a life jacket, if you will, just something to float on and say, okay, maybe that's helpful as we look at, at this passage. So we're going to get going here, and here's our first question. There's a couple. We're going to move through kind of an outline here. The first one, we just got to reconcile, did Rahab even lie here? Because if we can get her off the hook, maybe she didn't, then this whole question was just goes on and no, she didn't lie and we don't have to deal with this. So, so that's the first question, did, did she lie? We'll look at Joshua 2, just 4 through 5. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. Okay, and we'll look at that later. That's almost the first, uh, you could say that's the first lie. She hit him. And she said, true, interesting choice of words, true. The men came to me. Yes, they did. That is true. But I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. Was it a lie? Did she tell a short answer? Yes. Line number one, verse four, I did not know where they were from. And then number two, when the gate was about to close, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. The first lie, I do not know where they came from. Maybe you could squeak by on the basis, well, she didn't know for sure where they were from. Like she didn't know which tent they had lived in in the camp of the Israelites, something like that. So you kind of maybe she got away with it. But the second one was a direct lie. She knew exactly where the men were. They were hiding. She's the one that brought them up there and hid them, as verse 6 tells us. So we're dealing with an actual lie here, a falsehood, a misdirection of these men. But before going on, okay, our next one, we're just going to refresh ourselves on the Bible's clear teaching about falsehoods and lying. So what does Scripture say? And I'm going to go through these... um, just kind of read them off to you, and I'll, I'll list them up here, starting with the Old Testament 
passages, and I'll read them for you, but that's the list of them if you want to see. Uh, there's more. This is not all of them. Exodus 20.16, the ninth commandment. God states, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Leviticus 19.11, God states to his people, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another. Seems pretty clear. You could see, yes, these were laws given to Israel as a people group, but I think they're also they're moral laws. They're natural laws on, on every heart. Every heart knows intrinsically lying to someone is bad. It's a bad thing. Why? I think because we're made in the image of God who is a God of truth. He's not a God of lies. That's what Numbers 23, 19 says. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God is not a man that he should lie. Some others. Proverbs 4.24 says, Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Proverbs 13.5 The righteous hates falsehood, but the wicked brings shame and disgrace. Proverbs 20.17 Bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be full of gravel. That's an interesting proverb. How about the New Testament? Jesus himself states, John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. He tells his disciples that the spirit of truth will come and bear witness about him. Uh, love we read about in 1 Corinthians 13, 6, rejoices with the truth. Ephesians 4.25, Paul urges the Ephesians, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul calls the church of the living God a pillar and buttress of the truth. 1 John 3.18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Do you feel a... Uh, Theme going on here, First Peter 2, 1 Peter 2.1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And then Revelation closes with an eye to the new heavens, the new earth. Jesus says, Revelation 22.14-15, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So just quick, by no means, as I said, exhaustive search of Scripture, this issue of truth versus lies, reality versus falsehood, it's a major theme due to the fact that God does not lie but is himself the embodiment of truth. Truth speaks the very nature of who God is. So what do we do with the fact that on the one hand, lying, falsehood, deception is spoken against by the words of Scripture, and yet in the same Scripture where we're at in Joshua, deception, falsehood, lying seems to at least be overlooked or even exonerated, you might say, as you look at Rahab in the New Testament, um, in her case. All right, we are getting there, but we're just kind of laying 
some bricks along the road as we go there. One is we're in the realm of ethics. This is understanding ethics. That's the realm. You've got thicker books you can read on ethics or order ethical books. That's what we're in. One writer, Robertson McQuilkin, who wrote a book, Introduction to Biblical Ethics, and I'll kind of use him through this. Uh, in short, I think he defines it shortly as, you can't read it up there, but God's standard for Christian behavior. So what is ethics? We're saying, what's God's standard for Christian behavior? In other words, what would God have us do in life? More specifically, when faced with two seemingly opposite uh, moral choices, what would God have us do? What is God's will? What pleases God? Okay, in the case of Rahab, what's pleasing? Should she... Should she have given up the spies and said, yeah, they're in the flax? Or, or not? Those sorts of questions. There's a couple ways that people, smarter than I, more learned, deal with these, or you've probably heard of them before. One way of understanding ethics is situational ethics. We're not going to list them all, but situational ethics, the law of love. Here's the law of love. It's a view... So this is one way to look at this issue, okay? We're just looking at some ways. A view that looks to the greatest good to be done in a situation, whether individually or for a group. Love rules the day, not the command of God. Whatever is most loving for that group or whatever helps the group or that individual, that's what kind of rules the day. The, the problem with this is who defines uh, what love is. And in our day, that can be a pretty broad category. In order to show love, some might say homosexuality, is that's an acceptable behavior because we want to love the people involved in this sin. Now, we should love them as we love all sinners, all that are caught in sin. But that love should not change the commands of God that say homosexuality is wrong. Uh, David Jones uh, says here, it, from the book that I read from, he's got kind of in summary, he says, the new morality starts from persons rather than principles, from experienced relationships rather than revealed commandments. Does that make sense to you? It starts with morality starts from persons rather than principles. So, so the people we see in the relationships, those determine what we should do, what's right and wrong in a various situation, not, not a command. I mean, if a lie is to be used, if there's a good purpose for it, well, it's probably okay. Or if a lie shows love, then by all means, lie. So what we do is based on the situation. Another one called tragic morality or the lesser of two evils. So this is where neither moral choice to lie or to not lie, neither one is especially right, but you choose the lesser evil thing to do. And then perhaps, I think in some ways, you choose the lesser evil, as some commentaries even talk about Rahab. Well, she was a foreigner, and you know she probably went back and then was forgiven. So you, you sin by doing the lesser of two evils, and you go back, and then you ask for forgiveness. It kind of it, it smacks in the face of what forgiveness is, repentance. It's like, I'll do the sin, but I know I can repent later for it. I don't think that's any better. Or is there something better, more helpful. So what I gave here, the situational ethics, 
lesser two evils. There's, there's more. There's like hierarchalism and all sorts of things you can read about. There's more of how to deal with these dilemmas, where we face a moral conflict of two impossible choices. But we're going to move towards a solution. It, it may not solve every question. You might even disagree with it. It's okay. Um, but it's, it's from uh, a fellow named Robertson McQuilkin, as I read about, and I, and I find it helpful to us. Just to, how do we think through this? And hopefully we're thinking biblically, not just, I don't know, that sounds good, that sort of thing. So that's why I say test with Scripture. He gives us uh, two facts to remember here as we go towards a solution. Here's the two facts that are good to remember. Number one, the basic sin, and we can apply it to Rahab or any of this lying, the basic sin is deception, not merely the deliberate verbal expression of falsehood. So the basic sin is deceiving. In other words, sometimes we lie by not saying, uh, by not saying something, like we withhold information, or we say something true, but with mental reservation. So somebody might say, are you coming tonight? And we might say, absolutely. But in our mind, we're saying, absolutely not. So, you know, so we're ans- there's, a, there's a deception. Well, I answered truthfully, but in my mind, I made it legal. I made it right. <clears throat> That's one way. It's deception. <coughs> Excuse me. Number two. To remember as we look at this, Scripture alone, and this is what I appreciate, must be our guide. And he says that cuts both ways. If within Scripture we see exceptions, then we might conclude there are exceptions. But if Scripture does not warrant and offer an exception, then there is none to be had. Now we're going to look briefly, just before we look into them a little more deeper, three categories that he lists of exceptions. And we're very careful, and I want to be careful as I look through these, that these are just not used as, well, lying. pastor said lying's okay. No. No, we just look through all the Scripture. So these are categories of exceptions he sees. You can sort these out in, in your mind. Number one, uh, well, you've got them there. Inconsequential social arrangements. We'll explain that. Number two, deception and war, kind of where we're at with Rahab. Number three, Deception and opposing criminals. We'll just look at each one kind of briefly here. Okay, inconsequential social arrangements. How are you doing? Fine. What does that mean? Some of us, you know it on the face. If, how are you doing? Fine or fine, and everything's not fine. It's, it's those, those greetings uh, as we go that we're not expecting, not necessarily Everyone to say on the sidewalk, how are you doing? Hey, let me just tell you, you know, and just go into. Now, there's places where we could certainly be more honest at times, right? Maybe we get around it. I do. Sometimes you'll say, how are you doing? I'll say, uh, I'm doing okay, or God's providing, or something like that. It's, it's like we develop our own code for, I'm not doing that well, but I know God is on the throne and all these sorts of things. We, we do this. There's these social arrangements. Um, McQuilkin talks about the ability to deceive in games. You're watching the Super Bowl today. The, they're going to maybe play, do a trick play. But is, are they deceiving the other team? If the sin is deception, they're deceiving, right? The quarterback fakes a throw. He just lied. Or, or did he? It's part of a game. We understand there's a game going on. And so there's deception in the game. And 
You could make jokes back and forth of patriots or whatever, but we don't know that. We won't get into that. But deception and games. Jokes, for instance. Games. Birthday surprises. You know, where are we going for my birthday? I don't know, but you do. All those, they're all sorts of things. So that's not so much biblical. It's just, it's cultural almost. So we're kind of putting those on the front. But here's the two weightier exceptions. This one, deception in war. Here's what McQuilkin says. War, by its very nature, is waged with all available weapons, including psychology and deception. He points to, not just in this place in Joshua, but Joshua chapter 8, they're going to come against the city of Ai, and they're going to do an ambush against the city. It's deception. Israel's going this way, so... The city goes after them, but they're going to come in behind. There's deception in war. Uh, He also points out Rahab's deception that I kind of alluded to here. Even before she lied outright, she had hid the spies on the roof. She was already deceiving before she even said anything. She was hiding them up on her roof. So where did, if she did lie and all those sorts, and it's wrong, where did that deception start? McQuilkin says this, Rahab acted in the faith that the God who was with Israel was mightier than the gods of Jericho, and she did the right thing. She sided with God's people and deceived through actions and words in what may properly be called an act of war. He goes on to say, if war is legitimate, then ambushes, camouflage, spying, deceptive strategy, Communicating in code as integral parts of war are also legitimate. Okay. Just a brief aside on Rahab, since I think that's what we're looking at in her case, this deception in war. We think, how does God look at this situation and look at Rahab? New Testament's pretty interesting on how it looks back on Rahab. A couple of verses. One, we won't. I mean, you can write these down. Matthew 1, five we talked about last week. Rahab is listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. A prostitute is listed in this genealogy. Another place she's listed, Hebrews 11, uh, 30 through 31, I'll read, but it's a passage proclaiming the faith of the people of old. Here's what it says. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. That's what the New Testament looks back on her actions and concludes. It's challenging here, I think, to conclude in in any way that any of her actions were deemed sinful by the Lord. I think it shows a commendation of her actions. They were preceded by faith. There was a trust in God a fear of God as the God in, of the heavens and the earth below. One more place is James where she's listed, James 2.25. Now, this is a passage discussing the outworking of faith by our works. James lifts up Rahab as an example of one who, who believed and then her works. Her, basically, her fruit followed her faith. She believed and then she acted on her faith. James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then verse 25, and in the same way, 
<clears throat> was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? So just as Abraham had faith and his works followed him, so too Rahab. And again here, just on the side, God is using a prostitute, someone that deceived and a prostitute, a foreigner, to work on his behalf, for his plan, for his purpose. He is a gracious God. And I think we see a picture of that grace and we see it throughout the reading of Scripture. We have a gracious God who calls out to sinners, came not to heal not to forgive the healthy or heal the healthy, but for the sick, those that need forgiveness. All right. Well, the other one, we had three, deception and war. Then the other one is deception in opposing uh, criminals. Deception in opposing criminals is what McQuilkin says. Deception is apparently one form of resistance that like physical resistance, is ordinarily wrong, but not wrong in resisting a criminal or an enemy in war. Here's where we go to Scripture, to Exodus 1, 17 through 21. Remember the multiplication going on of the, of the Israelites in the land of Egypt before God brought them out. The, the order by Pharaoh in the land of Egypt was for the Hebrew midwives to kill any son that came out of the womb of a Hebrew woman. But the text says this, and I'm starting a little bit before what you have up on the screen here. Here's what the text says. So command of Pharaoh, the leader, the, 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 the official, when the sons come out, kill them. Here's what happens. But the wid- midwives, we've got their names, uh, Shifra and Pua, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives. So one thing to disobey. Now he calls them in and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? Verse 19. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. That wasn't the case, but they lied. Verse 20, verse 20 gives us, so God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. They deceived to combat the criminal activity of Pharaoh to kill the Hebrew sons. McQuilkin goes on to ask about what deception, you know, if you're a homeowner, and you leave the lights on at night and you're not home, are you deceiving the criminal who wants to come in and rob your house because you're gone? I mean, it's just, you know, you think about it in different cases. It's helpful. Think about undercover police or the, or the robber that comes to the door and this child, you know, hey, mom and dad are leaving for a bit. And you answer the door. If anybody comes to the door, we're here. We're just downstairs. We're here. We're, you know. And does the criminal deserve truth at that moment to say, are your parents here? No. Or does he say, does that child say, yeah, they're here? That sort of question, that sort of idea. Uh, he emphasizes, again, this is not based on a situation or the lesser of two evils, but he says this. I've got a quote here. 
any form of deception is a very bad sin. Kind of in summary here, except those situations in which Scripture permits or advocates deception, inconsequential social arrangements, war, and criminal resistance. All right. Some a danger here and some conclusion as we wrap this up. Obviously, it's a danger of, of ever saying that a lie is okay. It's dangerous, and we should sense that danger to ever say that. It can open up a world of lies, I think. David Jones, though, speaking again of those at Lish and Bonn, he helpfully says this. I think I've got it up here for you. There we go. He says this, and I think it's helpful. He says, but truthfulness under duress is a problem of conscience only for those who, for whom the practice of truthfulness is already well established. I'll just read that again. Truthfulness under duress is a problem of conscience. That's what, we have a conscience. If it's a problem for you, it's only a problem for those whom the practice of truthfulness is already well established. Persons who lie every day for personal advantage or simply for convenience are in no position to appreciate the dilemma faced by the villagers of Le Chambon. In other words, here, the problem is not for, it's not for those that say, oh, awesome, I can go lie now. The Bible says I can't. It's for those that wrestle and they say, we want to follow God and his truth. And what does it say? It says, do not lie. Speak the truth. Yes, Lord, those are your commands. So now I'm stuck and I got these moral choices. What do I do? That's, kind of more the flavor than just a, this opens up a door here. So a couple of conclusions as we look through here. Number one, God is a God of truth. He's a God of truth. We ought to be very slow to consider the exceptions we might find in Scripture. If you want a whole thick book on this, read Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, prophet, pastor, Martyr and spy. I mean, it's pastor, spy, all in the title. Uh, Eric Metaxas wrote this book on him, and I think he, he follows some of that wrestling, Bonhoeffer, in World War II, and he was part of the conspiracy to assassinate Hitler. What does he do? He's a pastor, and yet he's in this conspiracy and all these sorts of trials that he's in. But I think he wrestled with it. It wasn't just an easy thing, or like these at Le Chambon that are wrestling with it. Lying ought not to be an easy or quick step, but be rooted, be rooted in a healthy fear of God and His Word. And then trust Him in those exception, qualified, certain cases. Trust Him for the right kind of judgment on that day. Number two, we live in a fallen and corrupt world. The people whom we deal with are sinners, and us too. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, We have hearts that are deceitful above all things, desperately sick. We struggle to speak the truth. We live in a world where sin affects everyone. I think where clear ethics are not the norm. It's not an excuse for us, but just the reality of where we live. Until Christ comes, we live in the world of, of Hitler and Pol Pot and terrorists. We live in this corrupt world. 
Number three, based on scriptures, uh, should say we see some exceptions, some. I think the scriptural citations, they're too numerous to pass over in which God's people deceived for the sake of saving lives, saving lives in specific situations. Rahab, I believe in the New Testament, she was commended for what she did. And, and I believe those at Le Shambon as well. The last one. We must hear this, Bethany. We must speak the truth even when it may harm us. When harm to others is at stake, such as in opposing criminals or war, there are some tough decisions to make. None of these should be easy, I don't think, with a healthy fear of God. But in our daily lives, our workplace, in our homes, at the school, the call of Scripture clearly is to speak the truth even when it's to our own harm and detriment. To follow God, not man, when the two collide. And to be martyred even for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I'm going to read kind of a conclusion paragraph uh, to a chapter on this by Jones. And I thought it was just uh, interesting as he replays a conversation with his preschooler son. He says this, When my son was a preschooler, I read to him the story of Rahab and the spies. Afterward, he said to me, Dad, Rahab told a lie. But it was a good lie, wasn't it, Dad? He says, Well, what is a dad to say? He says, Go ask your mother. It can only be used so many times. He concludes this, The problem is that although falsehoods may be justified in extreme cases, as a last resort in the protection of human life, they cannot be called good without qualification because they result from an abnormal situation and a breakdown of human relationships. As Haley comments with respect to the, the people of Le Chambon, the Chambonet, he says this, quote, They were as candid, as truthful with the authorities as they could have been without betraying the refugees. The spirit of Le Chambon in those years was a strange combination of candor and concealment, of a yearning for truth and of a commitment to secrecy. They were as open as love permits in a terrible time, end quote. He concludes, they did the right thing, but regarded the deception as something regrettably necessary rather than unqualifiably good invite the worship team to make your way up here as we're going to sing. And we're closing on a song titled, Whom Shall I Fear? The God of angel armies goes before me. Whom shall I fear? I think there's application for us in this. Whether one day we face what those at Le Chambon did, if we face that situation in our country, or we must simply tell the truth. We have a God we can look to. We can trust in Him no matter what harm may come our way for following Him. So who do we have to fear? Nothing. We can pray, Lord, give me wisdom in those situations. But may I be a truth speaker and live for you.